of any topic that we talk about for the entire year. But before we talk about, before we kind of move into the big reveal of what this morning's topic is, I, I want to jump back just real quickly into what we talked about in week one of this series, You're Not the Boss of Me, which is God as the ultimate authority. He gets to make the rules, and because he gets to make the rules, well, that's just the end of it. And when my opinion doesn't necessarily jive with his truth, then I'm the one who is in the wrong because he's the ultimate authority. And for me, I struggle with that sometimes. Just being completely authentic, completely real, I struggle with that at times. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I really enjoy talking. Yeah, right, there's a chuckle that comes over the crowd. That's not a newsflash for most people that know me. I love to talk, but even there's something that I enjoy doing more than I enjoy talking. I love to voice my opinion. I love to give my opinion. A statement that I find myself using quite often is, I think, right? I think this, or I, I think that we should do this. I think we should do that. And the reason is because I value my opinion. I value my ability to think. I value my ability to reason and to rationalize. And that usually, or very often at least, that often leads me to forgetting that when my opinion doesn't line up with God's truth, I'm the one who's in the wrong. I'm the one who has kind of missed the mark and has to get back into the direction that God's truth would take me as a follower of Jesus. It's almost like kind of if, to, if, if there's an analogy or an example that I could use, it's almost like I treat God's truth at times like it's a buffet. So you're like, uh, what, a buffet? What are we talking about here? I, follow me on this. See if you can follow me on this analogy. Here in Stuttgart, the, the buffet I think of the most often is probably Lotus Blossom. Uh, if you're watching us from somewhere else, part of the state, you, whatever buffet most closely connects to you, you can use this in this analogy. But when for in Stuttgart and in this area, I think about Lotus Blossom. And you go into Lotus Blossom and it ha there's a lot of items on the buffet. You know, there's 20 items on the buffet and you can walk in and you can be like, yeah, I like this one, I like this one, I like this one. And you can like almost all of the items on the the buffet, but there's always going to be an item, at least one on that buffet that you don't want anything to do with. For me at Lotus Blossom, it's that thing they have that's practically nothing but mushrooms. You know what I'm talking about? It, it's, it, it's all mushrooms. And for me, mushrooms are a no-go. They're like boogers. I don't like mushrooms. I don't like the way they taste, I don't, and I don't like the way they smell. I don't like the way they feel. I don't like the way they look. I mean, my whole family loves these things. And, and they, like, Ella will just shove them in my mouth. It's like, just try them, Daddy. I don't want to try them. They're nasty. I don't like mushrooms. And that thing that they have on the buffet at Lotus Blossom that's practically all mushrooms, like, no, I'm going to pass on that. I, I, I'll take everything else on the buffet, but that specific item, I don't want anything to do with that. And sometimes I treat God's truth the same way. Um, you know, God, I'll have a little bit of this, I'll have a little bit of that. You know, I, I'm good with your, with faith, I'm good with, with uh, you know, serving others, I'm good with love, I'm good with a lot of this truth, but that one right there, eh, that one's got mushrooms in it. I, I don't, I'm not interested in that one. That's the mushroom item on God's buffet. So this morning, that leads, leads us to the big reveal. What is the mushroom item on God's buffet when it comes to submitting to his authority? And drum roll, please. This morning, submitting to God's authority when it comes to our money. Okay, now, don't stampede for the door just yet, okay? So just hang with me. 
Don't, don't make a, a mad dash to the door. Um, we rarely talk about this topic at Stuttgart, Stuttgart Harvest Church. In fact, if you have not uh, attended Stuttgart Harvest Church much, or if you have not attended Stuttgart Harvest Church for a very long time, maybe several, several years, you have probably never heard us talk about this topic on this stage. I don't know that we've ever talked about this topic on this stage. We just don't talk about money very often here at Stuttgart Harvest Church, and I promise, I promise this morning, we are going to delve into this with a ton of grace. Uh, I am far from having this topic under control. Like I said, it can be the mushroom item on God's Truth Buffet. So we are going to delve into this with a ton of grace. But as we do kind of go forward, what I'd like to do is think about the emotion that maybe you felt when I revealed that we were going to be talking about God's authority when it comes to my money. Think about the emotion that you might have felt when I revealed that. Was there a little bit of tension? Did you feel a little bit of internal tension when I said that? Was there maybe a moment of internal pushback? Was there a moment of, you know, okay, look, man, you can talk about a lot of things, but hey, brother, we need to avoid this topic. We don't need to talk about that. And if that's the case, that is okay. In fact, that makes you a normal American Christian because, let's face it, nothing can stir more emotion in us than when someone begins talking about our pocketbook. Nothing stirs more emotion than when we begin talking about our money and our possessions and our stuff. And Jesus knew that that was going to be the case. He knew that would be the case, which is really going to bring us already to our very first big point this morning, not even five minutes in, our first big point. Jesus knew that the chief competitor for our heart would be money. He knew that money would be our chief, would be the chief competitor for our heart 2,000 years ago. He knew that it would be money that he was going to have to compete with when it came to the heart, when, when it came to my heart 2,000 years ago. He knew that. I mean, stay out of my wallet, government, right? Don't ask for taxes. In fact, when November rolls around, we're going to vote for the person that promises to lower our taxes, not the person that's going to raise our taxes, because government needs to stay out of my wallet. Relationships. Think about your family or your friends. You can have a great relationship with somebody, but when that relationship kind of begins to feel like it's moving in a financial direction where money begins to be a topic of conversation often, that relationship can begin to devolve. Stay out of my wallet, family, friends. Stay out of my wallet, church. I mean, let's face it. We can talk about faith up here. We can talk about love. We can talk about all manner of things that is God's truth. But, man, the church needs to be very careful when we talk about money. Because how easy do we give our pain to God? How easy is it when we're hurting or when we are experiencing a tough time or when something's going bad, we're sick, somebody we're connected to is sick? How easy do we, do we give that to God? How easy did I give my eternity to God? I mean, you think about how long eternity is. You can't. I mean, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But eternity's forever. And yet I willingly and easily said to God, God, I'm giving it to you. I don't understand it, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you my eternity. How easy we give our pain. How easy we give our eternity. But, man, it is hard to give God our stuff, our money, and our possessions. It's hard to do. Because here in America, 
We love our stuff. I mean, I do. I love my stuff. Here in America, we love our cars. If you're a car guy or a car, or a car girl, you, we love our cars. Here in America, we love our clothes. Okay, well, um, quick story. I'm not a big clothes guy. I don't know if you guys have noticed that over the course of the... I'm, I'm a t-shirt and short kind of guy. And my grandma, about two weeks ago, if you know her, it's, my, it's when I call my, my nanny. My nanny comes up to me about two weeks ago, um, just really mad at me. I was really aggressive. I was kind of kind of freaked out a little bit. She comes up to me real aggressive, and she like gets right in my face. Well, really not my face, more like my chest, because she's getting old, and she's kind of shrinking. And uh, she gets right in my chest, you know, and she's like, Cole, you dress like a hobo. <laughs> what? I dress like a hobo? What are you talking about? I mean, I mean, come on. I see you wearing your shower shoes. She calls shower flip-flops or shower shoes. That's what she calls flip-flops, shower shoes. If I see you wearing your shower shoes up on stage at that church one more time, I'm going to come, and I'm going to take you out. She's an aggressive lady. Um, so, just if you're watching, I just want to make sure I, I wore my shower shoes this morning. I'm not a big clothes guy, but many of us, we love our clothes here in America. We love our clothes. We, we love, our, uh, we love our, <laughs> our food, right? I, I, can, I can relate there a little bit more. We love our food. We, we love our boats. We, we love our, our trips, our vacations, the things that our money can do for us here in the South. Hey, we love our guns, right? We love our guns. We love our stuff. We love our possessions here in America. And God is very well aware of that fact. He was well aware of that fact 2,000 years ago. He's well aware of that fact today. In fact, no other topic received more of Jesus' teaching than did that of money. Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven, than he did about eternity, than he did about love, you name it. He talked more about money than he did about any other topic. Because he knew. About 42% of the parables that Jesus taught during his three plus years of earthly ministry were on the topic of money. 42%. Nearly 25% or about a quarter of the words of Jesus in the New Covenant are on the topic of money, possessions, money management. 25%. One out of ten verses in the, in the, uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One out of ten. Money. There are about 2,000, right, right at 2,000 scriptures in the entire Bible on the topic of money. If you take the topics of faith and prayer and combine them in the entire Bible, there's twice the number of topics on money. Money is significant. God knew there would be significance. He knew that it would be the chief competitor for my heart when it came to a relationship with him. So this morning, very simply, we're just going to get into Scripture, and we're going to see what God has to say about the follower of Jesus' relationship to money. This is not what I think. This is not my opinion. This is not Harley's opinion. This is not the, if you will, uh, when I, this is not the official stance of Stuttgart Harvest Church. This is simply what God says about money. Now, Jesus, in his three-plus years of earthly ministry, taught with something called a parable. There's a few elements that I think are important about understanding a parable. Uh, first of all, a parable is a fictitious story that uh, it, it has an earthly uh, understanding. There's an earthly connection, an earthly relation that kind of would make sense to us here on earth, but it has a deeper spiritual meaning. So it's like God, or it would be like Jesus when he would teach a parable. It was almost like he was taking off his God glasses and putting them on me, the reader, so he could say, I'm going to tell this in a way you can understand it, but it has a lot deeper spiritual meaning. A second thing about a parable is you really need to understand context 
of a parable, and that's the case with anything that we study in the Bible, but specifically parables, because it's important to know who's Jesus talking to, when, when is he talking, where is he talking, just a lot of context that's important. And then the third element to a parable, if we're studying parables, is it's important to understand that there is always a God character in the parable, and there is always a human character in the parable. There's always a, a character that represents God, and there's always a character that represents me and you, always. Every parable that Jesus is teaching. So we're going to jump into Scripture this morning and see what Jesus has to say on this topic. And we're going to start in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, we're going to be in verse 14. This is a parable that Jesus taught. Uh, and we're just going to jump right into it. Matthew chapter 25 verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. So right there, the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of Jesus' way of saying, hey, this is the way God looks at this thing. So you need to pay attention. So there's this man, he's going on a long trip, and he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Now the master, the owner, the person that possessed the money, he represents in this parable God. And the servants, the person who were given the money, they represent me and you. That's us. So Jesus said, and Matthew tells us that Jesus said, that the, the master, he gives the uh, servants this, he, he's going to give them his money while he's gone. And then in verse 15, it actually gives us what he gave. It says he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last. Now, other translations use the word talent. Uh, talent is a unit of measurement. Kind of like if we might say, you know, uh, like a dollar is a, is, a, is a measurement, a talent's kind of like that, but it's a unit of weight, and it was one of the ways that they would measure money. And so one servant got five talents, one got two, and one got one, dividing it in proportion of their abilities, and then Jesus said that the owner, the master, left. He took off. He left on his trip. Now, don't miss the context here. I, I missed this context for a long time. This context is important. One talent, one talent, one of these bags of silver is the equivalent of about 6,000 denarii. And a denarii, one, was basically a day's wage for a day worker. So we're talking 6,000 days wages, which is the equivalent of 16 years of wages. One bag. Two bags would be about 32 years. Five bags would be about... 80 years worth of wages. These were not insignificant amounts of money that Jesus was talking about. This wasn't, you know, the owner giving the servants a Christmas bonus. This was a significant amount of money. Now, I'm going to paraphrase the rest of the parable. Jesus says that after the master had gone, he says that the, uh, the one, the servant that got the five bags, that he took the money, he uh, invested it, he kind of treated it as the master himself would have treated it, he managed it as the master would have had him managed it, and he doubled it. He went from five to ten. And then the one that got two went from two to four. But the one that got one, he was kind of maybe like the way I would have been. And Jesus said he actually dug a hole, and he buried 16 years worth of wages in the hole. Covered it up, and that was that. And then Jesus tells us that the owner... The master, he's, he's gone for a long time. In fact, that extended trip, he was gone for a long time, and he finally comes back, and Jesus tells us that when he comes back, the master says, okay, hey, I'm back. Give me an account of what you've done with my money. 
tell me what you've done. And, and the guy that had five, he says, man, I, I did kind of what you would have wanted me to do. I, I got 10 out of this thing. I went from 80 years to 160. And then the guy that had two said, I doubled it and went from two to four. And, and man, the master, Jesus said, he, he used the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant. Great job. You've done well. You have managed my money exactly the way I would have managed it. Good job. Let's go have a party, you know. Awesome. But the one that buried the money, he was like, eh, I wasn't really all that fired up about this. And so I was kind of nervous. I was a little scared, so I buried it. The master admonished this guy very, very harshly. He said he called him wicked, and he actually casts him out. Uh, he says, you're, you're gone. You're out. You, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. It's very clear that the first two guys did what he wanted, and the last guy didn't. The servants were expected to manage the master's money while he was away, basically the way the master himself would have managed it. And the same can be said for me as a follower of Jesus. I'm entrusted with managing the master's money while he's away, which leads us to our second big point. This is a big one. This is a big one. This one can make a huge difference in the way we look at money, and it's this. 100% of our money, it's God's. 100% of my money is God's. It's not mine. I am simply managing it. I'm just managing it. It can lead to an amazing change in thinking. If I think that 100% of what I have is actually God's, then I'm just being to manage it as he would. I'm just a money manager. And if that's kind of the big point, if that's our second big point, then this next statement might be kind of the big chill down my spine because managers are accountable to the owner, and God owns it all. And, and notice that what Jesus said, when the master returned from his journey, that long journey that he took, when, when the master returned, it was still his money. I mean, he gave these servants this money, but when he came back, he still said, hey, what have you been doing with my money? How have you managed my money? It was still his money. He expected his servants to account for his money the way he would have handled it himself. And when I take personal, just me personally, I'm not speaking for anybody else. This is just me. When I take personal evaluation of how I'm doing in that respect, then I don't always like what I have found. I don't always like what I find. And I kind of get a big chill when I think, man, everything I have is God's. And then I look at the way I'm managing it for him, and I'm like, "Ooh, I don't know. I don't know here. So if we're supposed to manage God's money in the same spirit that he himself would manage it, how, how would God manage his money? And Man, we could have went a lot of different directions. There's a lot of examples in the Bible. But I kept coming back to one particular verse that I think sums it up as good as anything. And, and it's in the, uh, the, the Gospel of John, the third chapter. And it's a story... Um, uh, this is not a this is not a uh, parable. This is an actual event that took place about a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night and he said, "Jesus, kind of explain this eternity thing. Kind of explain how I can, you know, get saved." And he kind of explain all this thing to me. And Jesus goes into this long teaching, and we center on what may be the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. Maybe the very first verse, if you've memorized much scripture, maybe the very first verse you've ever memorized. John chapter 3, verse 16. How would God handle his money? Well, this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus 
on the topic of how God showed his love. This is what he says, John chapter 3, verse 16. For this is how God showed his love to the world. This is how God did it. You want to know how God tangibly showed his love to the entire world? Here's how he did it. He gave. He gave. What did he give? His one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, real talk, when I think about that, when, when that thought runs through my mind, try to fathom, when I think about my kids, when I think of Ellen and Rachel, and I try to fathom being willing to give them for others. <laughs> no, thank you. No, not going to do it. I'm not doing that. I, I just, I can't imagine that level of love. I can't imagine. But yet, that is how God showed his love in a tangible way to the world. He gave. God gave. God's personality is that of a sacrificial giver. And I was created in his image. Now, you're probably sitting there right now, and this is okay if you are. You're sitting there right now like, yeah, okay, cool, dude. I got you. Whatever. Got it heard it god is a giver i can okay man we're, we're cool i can i'm with you to this point god's a giver i'm not arguing that fact but what in the world does all of this have to do with my possessions my stuff and my money very early in jesus's ministry very early i mean within just real quick right almost as soon as he was baptized and right after he was tempted in the wilderness very early in jesus's ministry he taught what at that time what we might call the rock star teaching of his day it was called the sermon on the mount and in the sermon on the mount jesus probably as much as any other teaching that he ever did lays out the central themes of what it really means to be a follower of jesus and if you really want to boil down what it means if you want to follow jesus and you want to count the cost of what it means to follow jesus go to the sermon on the mount Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And um, Matthew records it, and he gives us this account, this firsthand account of this, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, there are actually several teachings, but toward the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches on the topic of money, which is not unusual. So we're going to jump in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. This is what Jesus says. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, very important, that word treasure, it's up on your screen. It's on your screen if you're watching us right now. That word treasure, it doesn't really imply the literal money, the literal treasure, the literal whatever it is that you're thinking of right now. It doesn't apply, imply the literal item, the literal possession. It actually implies the treasure that you love you cling to, you focus on. Um, it's, it's really focused more on the attitude toward the item as much as the actual item, that, that word treasure. And it's in this thing that you love, you cling to, you focus on. It's on that treasure that if you really look at where that focus and attitude is, pretty soon you're going to be able to find the direction of your heart. It, it, it's going to follow. And if you really think about it, you probably are going to agree with Jesus' statement there. Wherever that treasure is, your heart's going to follow that. And then if we jump a couple of verses ahead to verse 24, Jesus kind of lays it out. He says in verse 24, very simply, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he says, you cannot 
Not you, you may not, or you probably can, or you sometimes can, or you sometimes can't. You can't. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Again, this is not me speaking. I'm not saying this. This is Jesus talking. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And again, keep in mind that what treasure means. Not necessarily the actual money or possession, but what we are clinging to and focusing on. Jesus is not pulling any punches here. He's, he's making it very clear. The most significant impediment between my heart and my heart's ability to follow Jesus is going to be if I'm enslaved to money. We've got another great example from the New Testament. We're actually going to have to time travel a little bit. So, you know, kind of you don't get to do that every day. We're going to time travel just, a minute, uh, just for a little bit. So the Sermon on the Mount in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're actually going to time travel almost to the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we're going to talk about the story of the rich young ruler. Now, we find it in three different Gospels. You can find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read from the book of Mark this morning. So we're going to go toward the end of Jesus' ministry to Mark chapter 10. And uh, we're going to start in verse 17. I'm going to paraphrase some of this because it's such a long story, and I'm trying to fit a lot of stuff into a short amount of time. And so we're going to jump in verse 17, and here's where we, here's where we are. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. This is, this is again, Jesus, uh, Jesus speaking. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, so Jesus is getting ready to go, go to Jerusalem, He's about to walk out the, out the door, walk out the gate. This, this, what turns out to be a relatively young, wealthy, uh, probably member of the Sanhedrin court, pretty well-to-do status uh, young man, runs up to him, grabs him, and he's like, man, I've only got one more chance to ask this question. I better do it before he leaves. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, then verses 18, 19, and 20, Jesus first, he admonishes him because of the way he addressed him, and then he kind of gives him a list, and he says, well, hey, you know the, you know the law as good as I do, because he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, he said, you know the law as good as I do, you got to do this, you got to do this, and all these things, and he gives him these lists of how we are supposed to act toward other people, and, and then the, the rich young ruler, he says, well, hey, man, Jesus, I, I do those things, I got that, check, 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 right? And then Jesus, in verse 21, he's looking at the man. Jesus felt genuine love for him, and he says, but there's, there's still one thing you haven't done. There, there's one, one teensy little thing. He says, go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And in verse 22, as would have been my reaction, at this the man's face fell. He went away, sad. For he had many possessions. He was very wealthy. And then verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is that to happen? And then he kind of goes and he gives a couple of analogies. You ever heard the term, you know, eye, camel passing through the eye of a needle kind of thing? That's in here. And then in verse 26, the disciples were astounded. The disciples were like, you know, it's like, what? The disciples are astounded. And they said, asked the same question that you might be asking right now. They say, who in the world can be saved if what he just said is that's the case who can be saved i mean well yeah right if that's the case this exchange right here these verses have bothered people for millennia wealthy people obviously uh, uh teachers pastors scholars you name it this 
account, this exchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler have bothered people for years. Do I really have to sell it all? I mean, do I have to give it all away? Is that the standard? But I'm going to put verse 21 up there again. Verse 21 is important. Jesus said, sell all of these things, do this, but then notice what he says at the very end. I've got it underlined. Then come follow me. The follow me hasn't changed. It's still follow me. Do this, follow me. The rich young ruler loved his stuff. His treasure was in his stuff. And then he says, get rid of that junk because you can't serve two masters. Get rid of all that stuff and then follow me. I personally think Jesus is actually inviting this guy to go on the road with him. That's, I, I think the guy could have actually went and sold everything real quick and came back and had, could have gone to Jerusalem with, with Jesus and the crew. I, you know, Jesus knew that the rich young ruler's biggest impediment to following him would be his possessions. He knew it would be his money. Jesus knew that this guy, he, he, he couldn't do it. He couldn't let go of that thing that he treasured, that thing he focused on and he loved more than anything else because of his love for money and possessions. And, I mean, again, being real here, being authentic, completely vulnerable right now, am I not the same way? I mean, I'm gonna, I, this is a question that I asked to someone this week. If selling it all was the requirement, if selling it all really was the requirement, would I do it? Man. I'll ask it this way. Is 100% of what I have, of what God has given me, of what 100% of what God has given me, is it at God's disposal? Whatever that means. If I receive the same invitation as the rich young ruler, what would be my response? Again, like, I'm, like I've said, I've said in the very beginning, I'm, that's tough. I mean, that's, that's tough. I don't know. What would my response be if I had the same invitation? Is 100% of my stuff at God's disposal? So we're going to time travel again. We're going to go from the end of Jesus' ministry. We're going to go back to the beginning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus is going to kind of, eh, he's going to add the cherry on top of his teaching here. Matthew chapter 6, uh, he is going, we're going to be in verses 31, 32, and 33. So we're in that same teaching that we were in just a moment ago, Matthew 6, the end of it, uh, verse 31. So this is Jesus kind of finishing up that teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things that dominate the, the thoughts of unbelievers, but your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And then, verse 33, man, big. He lays it out there pretty big. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Those are three huge words, above all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need above all else. That verse right there, it's in the middle of an entire teaching about money. He's been talking about money the entire time. Above all else, everything's about money. Jesus could have paralleled that statement of seek God's kingdom above all else. He could have paralleled it. He could have compared it to, he could have ran, could have ran it right beside anything. Anything. Seek God's kingdom above relationships. You've got to seek God's kingdom above all relationships, whether it be your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children. You have to seek God's kingdom in front of relationships. He could have done that, but he didn't. He could have said, you have to seek God's kingdom in front of, you know, 
getting into this world and working hard and making a name for yourself and doing well in your job and providing for your, for your family and having status, etc., etc., he could have paralleled it to that, but he didn't. Jesus chose to parallel seeking God above all else with money. I mean, anything. And he compares it, he parallels it to our ability and our attitude towards money. Because the line of demarcation between our heart's desires toward following Jesus and my heart's desire toward my money and my possessions is unmistakable. It is black and white, at least according to Jesus, which leads us, and McKinley, before you put this up here, I want to give a disclaimer on this big point. Because this big point, I'm going to be honest, this one could rub us a little bit yuck. You know, this one could do some tension. This one could hurt. Because it hurt it, it, when I typed it. This one hurt. Let's be real honest. When I, when I typed this, I had to do a real self-check before I was willing to put this up. This one, this is tough, but it's true. So big point number three, until Jesus is first in our finances, he's not first. Because that's what Jesus compared it to. Seek God first, his kingdom first, above all else compared to, and he was talking about money. I mean, the desires of my heart, Jesus knew it was going to be, he was going to have to compete with money. So what does all this have to do with me? What does all this have to do with you? How does this connect to us today on June the 28th, 2020? Have you ever considered this phrase, a means to an end, a means to an end? You ever considered that phrase? Um, I, I looked up the actual definition. The definition of that phrase is a thing that is not uh, valued or important in itself, but is useful in achieving a goal or an aim or a purpose. So by itself, it really has little meaning. It's something that has no meaning by itself, but uh, when you use it to achieve a goal or a purpose or, a or an aim, it now has become meaningful. So I don't have many of these. In fact, I have very few of these. This was the only one I could find, actually, if you want to know the truth. This is a $100 bill. This is the real McCoy. That is Uncle Ben Franklin on, that's his picture. I love his picture. His picture's awesome. I wish I had more of his pictures. But anyway, this, this $100 bill by itself has no meaning. It has no purpose. I mean, I can sit it on that stool, and it is inanimate. It is uncaring, and it is useless. I, it does nothing. It has no purpose. I mean, I guess I could wipe my nose with it, set it on fire to keep us warm. I, but it has no purpose by itself. It is inanimate. But when I give it purpose, now it has a, it's a means to an end. Now it has meaning. So I ask the question, and I'm really asking it to myself more than anything. This is really more for me, I guess. So y'all are kind of hearing me with an internal dialogue a little bit. Um, don't I want my life to have meaning? I mean, don't I want my life to have meaning? I mean, let's face it. I'm going to live, leave 100% of my stuff behind when I go. All of it. It's going to go, if, if they're good, it's going to go to my kids. We'll see. Where they're at. Where they're at. They're there somewhere. They'll understand that one day, that joke. It'll go to my kids. may go to my wife. Maybe. may go to the church. Who knows? Hey, there may be nothing left. I don't know. But it's all going to stay when I go. 100% of my stuff, it's, it, I'm going to leave it. My net worth is really nothing more than a tool. It is a tool. 
And my resources right now at this moment, they have the potential to make a forever difference. Now you're sitting there, some of us right now, and it's okay if you are, some of you are sitting there at this very moment and you're saying, uh, excuse me, sir, I got to be real honest with you. I have no money, <laughs> right? I'm broke. I, I got nothing. And that's a, probably another conversation. That's another, that's a whole series, you know, and, and we've, we've got some great resources and some great tools there. But I would just kind of leave with this statement because I was shocked when I read this. If your household income is $33,000 a year or more, you are considered globally a one percenter. You are at the one, the top one percent in the world. Thirty-three thousand uh, household income combined, thirty-three thousand dollars a year. So you know, it really comes down to this question: Do I want more stuff or do I want more stories? What do I want people to celebrate when I'm gone? I mean, you know, like you come to my funeral, you come to the celebration of life of Cole Sherman, right? And you say, man, that dude, he, well, man, that, his wardrobe was awesome. He knew how to dress. Nobody's going to say that. But, you know, that guy, whoo, he had some nice clothes. Or, or maybe, you know, man, have you ever noticed the pictures that he had on Facebook of all of the places he went? Or possibly, hey. He never was late on his light bill. And I know for a fact he kept his air conditioner at 70 degrees. So it was expensive. I mean, is that really what I want people to talk about at my funeral when I'm gone? Or am I after something else? I think this building is an awesome example. I think this is the best example I, I, I could think of. We, we, we purchased this building about four years ago, and, and it was expensive. It was very expensive to purchase this building. And then we renovated it, and it was very expensive. It was like a six-figure thing to take uh, over six, uh, into six figures, to take a, a car dealership and turn it into a church. And that renovation process was very expensive, and oh my goodness, there was so much sweat equity that went into it. I mean, we had a lot of sweat equity yesterday for those that came up here and, and worked to, uh, to, to do some things, and we we're so grateful for that. But for this conversation, for what we're talking about, I'm not, just, I'm not really not talking about the sweat equity. I'm talking about the actual dollars that made it possible. Those that actually were a part of the money to buy this building and to renovate this building. I mean, think about the stories. Think about when you're 80 years old and you've got your grandkids in the car and you're driving down Park Avenue and you look over here, you see this building and you say, you know what? I was a part of that. I made that possible because of the way I manage God's money. Man, I made that possible. You know, because I was willing to part with a few dollars and because I was willing to do that, your mom, speaking to your grandkid, you know, hypothetically, your mom, she began following Jesus right here in that building. Man, that's, that's a pretty cool story. That's, that's a pretty cool story. Or, or maybe it would be something like this. Inside that place right there, that building, because of something that I was a part of, people who were hurting, people who were, were hurting and were hurt, they could begin seeking Jesus in an accepting, authentic atmosphere where no perfect people were allowed, and they were allowed to come and just investigate. No pressure. Just investigate. Seek Jesus, and I was a part of that. Or, or maybe you could say, hey, I bought those chairs. I was a part of buying those big, tall chairs. And somebody in the community who did not have the best relationship and who, if they were to walk through the doors of a church, people may give them a double take. But they could come in, 
and they could walk in that door, and they could maybe put their head down because they were a little ashamed to be there because, man, you know, they didn't have the best reputation. And Man, church isn't where that person was expected to be, but they could walk down that hallway, and, and then they could come into that dark room, and they could sit down on the back row of one of those chairs. You can't even see over it, right, if you're not very tall. Yeah, you're trying to see me right now. See the screen. That's the reason we have a big screen. And they could sit down in the back row, and they could just disappear. They could become anonymous in that chair, and they could seek Jesus. I was a part of that. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the story could be. But I know those would be some pretty cool stories to tell. Those could be some pretty cool stories to tell. So how does all of this relate to the church in the follower of Jesus' world? And right there, everybody said, ah, there it is. <laughs> I've been waiting on it, right? They must be going to start a new project. They're going to ask me for money. I promise you, if in any way, shape, form, or fashion, I have led one to believe that that's the purpose of what we're doing up here is asking for money, I have failed, and I'm so sorry. God in his nature is a giver, and I was created in his image. So that really settles the question if I'm supposed to give. That settles the question. In fact, some interesting statistics. Um, and you can find statistics. You've got to be real careful on your statistics, so you've got to fact check. And, but... Statistics tell us that only about 2.5% of the population in America give to a local church. 2.5%. 2.5%. And I'll take it a step further. Only about, take or give, 7 to 10% of people who say, I am a follower of Jesus, give to a local church. We're not asking for money. I promise you we're not asking for money. And if, any, if anything I've said has made it feel like I am, I, I failed and I'm sorry. We're not asking for money. And the reason we're not asking for money is because Jesus never asked for money. Jesus never asked for money even though he taught on the topic all the time. He taught about it all the time and he never asked. Which really, it leads me to our bottom line, which is this. Our bottom line this morning. We had some, some big points. But our bottom line, Jesus never asked for money. He asked for our heart. And our heart follows our money. Now look, we're, we're not hung up on amounts. We're not hung up on percentages. We're not hung up on a lot of places. Use a term called a tithe, which is a tenth. It's, a ten, it's 10%. It's literally 10%. We're not, we're not hung up on any of that. We're, we're not legalistic about amounts or anything along those lines. We are simply posing the question, are we submitting to God's authority when it comes to our money? Or are we treating our money and our possessions as if they, were, they really were ours, that we're going to keep for ourselves, that we're going to use only on ourselves, and that somehow, some way, when we die, we're going to figure out how to take it with us? Or do we have a heart that, man, this is all God's anyway. It's all his anyway. And I'm just managing it for him while he's away. See, amounts and percentages are not the point. That's not the point we're trying to make. So this morning, I'm just going to close before we jump to our next steps. I'm going to close this morning very quickly with something that Paul wrote in his second letter to the Christ followers at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. On this question of, well, okay, we're supposed to give to the local church, and we're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to give of our money because God's a sacrificial giver, okay, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how much are we supposed to give? What's enough? You know, what's enough? This is what Paul said. Paul said, speaking to the Christ followers in the city of Corinth, he says, 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not because I stood up here and made you feel loves. Please, no. But God loves a cheerful giver. That's, that's why. You just do it because God loves a cheerful giver. Because he himself is that. Now, we've got a very challenging next step for really not only this week, we've got a very challenging next step for the next two weeks, for the month, or for the next two months, I'm sorry, for the months of July and August. We're at the end of June, and we are right around the corner to July and August, and we've got a very challenging next step. Most of us, myself included, my family included in many cases, we live our life kind of like, it's kind of like this. We live our life where we, we live and we, and we take care of us, and we do what we need to do, and we, take, you know, we live, and then we save. We kind of save for a rainy day. And then if there's anything left over at the end of the month, then we give. If there's anything left at all. Well, this week and for the next two months, we want to challenge Stuttgart Harvest Church in this room watching us right now. We want to challenge to maybe flip that script, be a little bit bold. We want to challenge to give First, let's flip the, flip the script and we give. Then we save, and then with what's left, we live. And we've got a very challenging next step this morning. And I'm going, my family will do this. Harley's family's going to do this. And this is our next step. It's going to be on the screen. Number one, we want to challenge for the month of July and August to choose a percentage and give it away. Give it away first. Give it away first. Now, say, how much? Remember, Paul said, it's between you and God. God loves a cheerful giver. As far as amounts, that's, that's not for me to say. I prefer it not to be a half of a half of a half of a half of a percent. But, you know, hey, that's up to you. Choose a percentage for the next two months, for July and August, and give it away first. Don't wait as soon as you get paid, because I'm going to be honest with you. If you hold on to Uncle Benjamin Franklin very long, Uncle Benjamin Franklin becomes more of the family and he's harder to let go of. Do it first. Let go of it first. As soon as you get paid, give. Now you say, okay, where do I need to give it? All right? Please hear my heart with what I'm about to say. If you consider yourself a part of the Stuttgart Harvest Church family, you consider yourself, you are part of this family. You are, you are in, you are in. Then we would encourage you to give to Stuttgart Harvest Church, that percentage, whatever that is, for the months of July and August. And after August, our next step is over. Then it becomes completely up, what's well, completely up to you anyway, but then it, it, our next step's over. But we would encourage you, give to Stuttgart Harvest Church, um, which would help us to pay for the hundreds of dollars of soft drinks and snacks that we give away every month. Say, why do we do that, by the way? I don't even understand that. Because when somebody comes in for the very first time, we want to be able to say, here, this is for you. We don't want to take from you. We want to give to you because God gave. Help us do that. Help us, you know, create a community pumpkin patch so in the fall we can have a big community outreach that we meet people and we get to know people and we get to love people and then maybe we earn the right to invite them so that we can help them seek Jesus. It would help us keep the air conditioner flowing, you know? Help us keep the water running. Help us keep this facility open and available for those who are wanting to seek Jesus in an accepting, authentic atmosphere. Help us serve someone other than ourselves as we try to play a small role in God's big story of redemption for his creation. 
So if you consider yourself a part of the Stuttgart Harvest Church family, man, that'd be awesome. But maybe you're sitting here right now or you're watching us right now and you're not, you're not quite there. Maybe this, is your, maybe, maybe this is your very first time to watch or to visit with us. And if that's the case, you may never come back. Because the first time you came, they talked about money. Hey, I, I, hey no, no judgment, I promise you. Um, I, I hope you give us another chance. But if that's the case, that's okay. And if you're watching us right now, it's the very first time, and you're like, oh, never tuning into this show again, I understand. Give us another chance. But if you're in that position and you haven't quite gotten to the point where you trust Stuttgart Harvest Church with your money, that's okay. Um, give, it, give it away wherever you want to. I would suggest, I think a great place is the Call of Arkansas. They do foster, uh, help with foster care and adoption. I think it's an awesome organization. I think you could do a lot worse than the Call of Arkansas. But wherever, pick that percentage and, and give it away first for the months of July in August. And then as you're doing that during the, whether it be the week, the month, whatever the case may be, pay attention to the internal. This would be the second thing. Pay attention to the internal um, attention that it creates. Pay attention. Listen very closely to the conversations that you're having with yourself. You know, what's at the center of your resistance to not want to do it? You know, this is, this is my vacation money. <laughs> I'm giving it away. Oh, this is the specialty coffee money. You know, this is my, this is my energy tea or whatever that stuff is. You know, this is, this is my tea money. Okay. Or maybe, well, this is kind of the light bill. <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know, I, I don't know. But pay attention to that internal dialogue that you're having with yourself. What excuses are you telling yourself, I can't do this? And then when it's all done and you have those conversations and you, you rationalize it with yourself, however long that takes, do it anyway. Just for two months, do it anyway. Do it anyway. Because Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And I hope we've shown this. Jesus knew 2,000 years ago that our money, that's where the rubber was going to meet the road. He knew that. He knew the rubber was going to meet the road in the area of our money. So, again, we leave with this question. Are we willing to submit to God's authority in this, granted, very difficult area in our life? Because, after all, it's 100% his anyway.